Hello, everyone. This is Gary Sheffer at Boston University um, here with my friend, Mike Fernandez. Mike, how are you? Good. How are things? Things are really terrible, Mike. You know, <laughs> I just I, I wish the Yankees had won at least one game. I mean, it's just they went down so easily. It was so depressing. But as we say every week, that's a topic for another day, right? Yeah, yeah. Or wait until next year. <laughs> yeah. Well, our guest this week on The Crux is, is Nick Johnston, who's the publisher at Axios, a media company that, of course, many of our listeners know for their journalism, political, economic, industry news, etc. And uh, Axios is now also offering something akin to a communications consultancy with its smart brevity approach. There's a book, template software, et cetera. And we're going to talk to Nick about that today, what smart brevity is and why Axios jumped into the communications business. Nick's background is in journalism. He was the founding editor-in-chief of Axios and led the Axios newsroom as it grew to more than 150 journalists. Before helping to launch Axios, Nick was a managing editor at Bloomberg where he oversaw newsletters and breaking news coverage in Washington. Previously, as a reporter for Bloomberg, he covered the White House, Capitol Hill, and the 2008 presidential campaign. Nick, welcome to The Crux. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Now, by the way, I just want to start, Nick. Was that introduction too long? No, I think you got the gist of it. <laughs> what was it about three or, it's about three or four sentences on my LinkedIn page. Think about that. <laughs> okay, Although excellent. on LinkedIn, it's also just in bullets, so you can skim it. That's there right. you go. I'm very nervous today about going on too long, which university professors usually do. All right, let's start with where the idea of smart brevity came from. Was it an extension of the Axios format? You know, your articles are 300 words or less with subheads and bullets and points. Where did Smart Brevity, the product, I guess, and the approach come from? I mean, I can even go further back in time than that to my career as a journalist and the career of the uh, the journalism careers of the founders of Axios as well, Mike Allen and Jim Vandehei, yep. who are also the founders of Politico and had previously worked for the Journal for Time Magazine for the Washington Post. Uh, their theory in, in founding Politico was very much that uh, traditional print journalism hadn't adapted to the rhythms of the Internet. Mm-hmm. Right. It was very difficult at newspapers pulling them onto the Web, just as far as how you would write a story, how quickly you would have to write a story how to get onto the print deadline, how to get away from print deadlines and get closer to internet deadlines. And internet deadlines are always. And the, the theory of Politico, <laughs> uh, Mike and Jim and John Harris, who also founded it at the time, was that 
the, you need to build a media company that is internet first, digital first. And at the time that was like a revelation. And now everyone does that. No one follows print deadlines anymore. You follow web deadlines. Like mm -hmm. you have news. Exactly. And uh, I was at the time working at, at Bloomberg, which is a wire. So we were already very digital first as far as like when you have news, you put it on, you put it on the wire. But then while they were at Politico, they began to dig in more into just into media consumption. What the Internet did to people, is it gives you this access to analytics, mm -hmm. which we never had in print. And what that access tells you is an apocalypse, right? No one's clicking on those <laughs> links. No one's scrolling through all of this stuff. This engagement you think is happening is just simply not happening at all. The story Vanda High likes to tell, possibly apocryphal, but, you know, we'll, we'll accept it because we're green <laughs> proof. In it. It's like he wrote a story about Hillary Clinton once during a campaign that got a million views. Great home run of a story. Mm -hmm. he goes into the data, he sees it was broken into four pages. Only the first page got a million views. No one, like 30% of people didn't click to the next one. 300,000 people read the mm -hmm. second page. 20,000 people read the third page. Zero, essentially, read the last page. And so that plants in Van Dyke said, why am I writing that fourth page? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I got to do with Bloomberg is I worked on an internal startup there called First Word, where we did a lot of just reader. We did we, we went out to people, to traders and asked them questions about how they did news consumption. And they told us that a lot of the information we were we were creating and how we, we were presenting it was just wrong. They didn't want that. And so at Bloomberg, I led to the creation of a, of a product called First Word, mm -hmm. originally traders. And then I built it for Washington, which is just very short. Get to the point, a little more analytical, stylistically, very much an ancestor to Axios. It had bullets. Yeah. Um, people I remember yeah. move on to the next thing. Um, and so the feedback we got from readers on that was remarkable. And so when Mike and Jim and Roy decided to leave Politico, um, I joined and we started here in Clarendon, Virginia, downstairs with a blank whiteboard and a shared office space saying, OK, we've learned all this from the data about how people consume information. And we know anecdotally how we read information. And since the founding of Politico and the start of First Word, the smartphone has been invented. Social media has invented. And so it's less about building an information delivery service that is digital first, but also mobile first, and that can cut through all this information. And so that, were the, that was the founding nuggets of what became Smart Brevity, realizing that no one's going to give you, no one clicks on all these links. They're scrolling through it on their smartphones. They're being deluged mm -hmm. with information. And so you have to very quickly and efficiently tell people what's new and why it matters and deliver it in a way that they can read it on their phone. Uh, and so, so that was the start of Nick, Smart Brevity. Yes. Okay. So I'm, so what are the offerings today? I'm holding in my hand the book, and I, I think I have around here somewhere the, the sort of summary of that Smart Brevity 101. Yeah. So, so what are you offering to prospective clients? Give us your you know, rundown of your sales pitch. Yeah. So like I'll start at the journalism. The, the, the theory of the, the case for journalism was that people need a way to get smarter, faster on the topics that matter. And so deliver it in smart brevity, which is both smart, hire really smart journalists to write really efficient news stories. And then like I love that Mark Twain quote again, also possible. Topical. I'm sorry I didn't write you a short letter. I didn't have time. I wrote you a long one instead. Really hard. You can't fake it when you have to distill it down. So we found out that that worked for news consumption expanded to 25, 30 newsletters. We're now in 40 cities with Axios Local. We know it's working in journalism because everyone's copying it. If you look at what the New York Times, what the Wall Street Journal, what the Associated Press, what the memos those, those editors-in-chief send to their newsrooms, it's to act more like Axios. 
And I hear that anecdotally from folks all the time. And so then we realized that we have an idea of delivering information that will work beyond just journalism. One of the first examples of it was a trade association in Washington emailed me once when I was editor in chief and said, we love Axios newsletters. Can you rewrite our trade newsletter in your style? And I said, absolutely not. I'm a journalist. It's not my job. But then on a weekend, like I played around with it and I saw that if I, if I use these theories, you know, make it condense it down into what the information that they really need to know, make it visually appealing, make it easier to read on a smartphone as you're scrolling through with your thumb, it became just incredibly more engaging. And we kept getting requests from corporations, from outside groups saying like, can you help us do what you do? Um, and so that led to a lot of just talking about it for free and owning our message. That eventually led to a, a training program we began to sell, consulting we would give, uh, not in the newsroom, but separate from the newsroom, we created a new team that would provide that service. And then eventually the creation of Axios HQ, which is a software product that helps corporations figure out how to commute internally and externally in this style. And then finally, we thought, we have enough here, let's put it down in a book. Uh, again, as I told them when they wrote the book, it should have maybe been a pamphlet, but you apparently you need a minimum number of words just so it fits in the binder. So <laughs> because of the format, but now distilling down, like, what are the lessons we've learned in 20 plus years each in journalism and delivering information? What is the feedback we've gotten in trying to talk to corporations and people outside of journalism about this and how this lesson can be used in everyday life? And, and thanks for being with us, Nick. But what does that say about how we all consume information? You know, that somehow, some way, there's, there's, there's only a small slit somewhere in our brains that allows us to only take in or more easily take in, let's call it fast food for the eyes. And, and then what happens to that information as we begin to think of it in a more analytical way? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I have two pieces of that answer. The first is this is not new. Right. You go back and read the founding documents of Time magazine. From the 19th yeah, or, or USA Today. Right. Like Al Newharth and Henry Luce said the exact same thing that Jim <laughs> Bain said. Like, we have not stumbled upon some miracle of information consumption. This has been a challenge that humans have been facing for over a century as we're just drowning in information. You know, Henry Luce famously wrote, you know, the New York Times is too long. I can't read the whole thing on the train into the city. And that's why Time Magazine exists, because at least you could get through it on a train ride. And so, again, we are fighting that same battle. The other thing that's happening, the flip side of that is just like technological change is that like I have access on my phone to far more information than Henry Luce could have put into his briefcase. I can read any book, I can listen to any song, I can watch any movie, I can book train tickets, I can call my parents. Uh, it's infinite, essentially, what I have access to on my phone. And so if you're delivering information or you have a message, you are competing against that. And so there's an element of some people who create information is that they see this data, like, okay, when someone clicks on an average internet link, they'll spend eight seconds with it. And they view it as a challenge. Okay, well, how do I get someone to spend 10 seconds or 15 seconds or 20 seconds? Well, my philosophy was that in the newsroom, if they only want to give you eight seconds, if you can give them the information they need in six and give them two seconds of your life back, they give you given them the greatest gift they will ever get. They can go eat a sandwich. They can go see their kids. They can go stare out into space. They can go listen to a song on Spotify, do something else with their life. Um, and I think that this, it is silly to sit here now and say, well, like, you know, we need to fight back against the invention of social media, or we need to fight back against the creation of smartphones. They're not being uninvented. Like they're changing our brains. And so instead of standing athwart that inevitable tide shouting stop, 
trying to figure out how you can meet those readers where they are. Now, what I want to know is, do people come back to you asking for it shorter? I mean, it's an endless battle. I was editor-in-chief. Here's an example I will tell you about how, tr- how difficult this, this challenge is. I was editor-in-chief of Axios.com for five years. A company, a newsroom founded under the precepts of smart brevity to get you smarter, faster on topics that matter by writing shorter stories. What was the thing that I told journalists more often than anything else? These stories are too long. Even in Axios, we, there was a constant battle fighting against this. There is a, a natural inclination when you sit down at your keyboard to just become long and stupid and boring. And it is hard. And we have to constantly fight against this. I mean, from a business standpoint, it's like, it's great for us because we'll never be solved. But again, like this, the, the invention of smart brevity is again, like no different than time style. You know, when Time Magazine began publishing, there was a there was a specific sense of like, oh, the way they write is different. It's a little more compact. It's a little more muscular. It's different than the way it was before for explicitly those reasons. That didn't solve it. Yeah, we're still we're still facing this, but I I feel like it is a it is a it is a constant journey of self improvement, right? Like a, a sense of discipline to say like, even when I'm writing memos in Axios or when I'm computing to my boss, Jim Van Hy, the CEO, I'll sit down and write it once and then I'll walk away and I'll come back and I'll write it again and I'll delete half the words. Although I would, although I would tell you both. I mean, at one point when I was a young student at Georgetown, I had a terrific pr- professor, an English professor. His name was Hubert Cloak. And Hubert Cloak would give us an assignment that most of us would think would take five or six, maybe seven pages to analyze two or three poems. And he would say, you get no more than one page double-spaced. <laughs> ah, as a fellow Georgetown alum, that is awesome. Music to my ears. Well, the students here get very perplexed how many pages, Professor. And I said, whatever you think it takes. And on the last assignment, I got everything from two to 25 pages. Wow. So it's uh, it, it's a new experience for for students as well, at least in my experience. I mean, I think about my experience as a reporter. I was a relatively mediocre reporter in Washington. <laughs> and I think back on if I didn't have command of a yeah, story, yeah. I would just type and type and type and type. And probably one of those words would be the right words. And you can cut and paste now and all of that kind of stuff, right? Pulling on past. Let me let right. me come at it from someone who has a different view, although I, I'd say it's actually mixed. Claire Malone, not surprisingly, in The New Yorker, giving its long form format, challenges uh, this approach in an article titled The Dubious Wisdom of Smart Brevity. As I say, it's it's sort of a mixed article. She, she praises smart brevity uh, as a good corporate style guide, um, has a lot of good things to say about elements of it. But at the same time, she says, when it comes to smart brevity as applied to news, there's something good-naturedly myopic about it. What's dismissed as, quote-unquote, extra words are, in other outlets, the contextualizing details of complex issues or arguments. What's your response to Claire, Nick? I mean, perhaps, first, like, of course the New Yorker is going to say that. <laughs> I'm also going to say, I'm a, like, whatever, I'm a New Yorker subscriber. We are not short for the sake of being short, right? We are disciplined about 
length. And so that we will do deep dives on weekends about singularly important topics. Our one on climate change was 3,000 words. Some of the reporting that we had about January 6th and efforts to overturn the election, mm -hmm. that went to many, many, many thousands of words because we had the goods. And there's nothing more, uh, there's nothing I love more than an incredibly deeply reported valuable New Yorker story. One of my favorite ones is the one that took over the entire issue recently. I think it was 40,000 words about this fellow who tried to walk across Antarctica. That was great. If that's what you're writing and reporting, take 40,000 yeah. words. But in the day-to-day -day journalism, that's not what you're doing. You do not need 40,000 words to talk about an incremental piece mm -hmm. of legislation or to talk about a president's tweets, talk about the results of election. You need to be disciplined about that because if you are not, you will not be read. Yeah. So so quick question. Do, do people, if you've got a... If, if you've got a hyperlink in in the middle of one of these things, do pe will people go to that next level or does it like drop off precipitously? Hmm. Very few people click. Uh, and the data on like the data on that is just it's just spectacular. Right. Like people do not want to do. People are lazy and we should let them be lazy. We have written stories about the statistical significance of the placement of an app on a phone. And that if your thumb has to move five millimeters to the right or the left to click on something, it will impact wow. how often you use that app. So think about think about the, the horror of asking someone to lift up their finger and lower it. <laughs> <laughs> that is horrible. Now, but what, however, what the internet does allow us to do is that. For people who do want to engage, so like the three, the, the three fundamental parts of an of an Axios story and how we view smart gravity is what's new, why it matters, and go deeper. You can simply provide everything you need in those first two sentences for the vast, 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 vast majority of people. But the go deeper is also very valuable too for people who want more. If you want to link back to a source document, if you want to read the transcript or watch the entire video, if you want to see the merger agreement or the full earnings report, this is what we found a lot at Bloomberg, is that. There is an incredible bifurcation between the people who just wanted to know the earnings per share, essentially one sentence, right? Earnings per estimate. If they wanted more than that, they wouldn't go to this middle ground where we wrote the story. They would just download the earnings re release and stick it into their Excel spreadsheet and run the numbers themselves. And so that this, mi this middle ground where you're providing contextualization that isn't really valuable or you're writing 800 words about something incremental, not valuable, but, but be able to provide for people who are truly interested in much more information that go deeper, I think is very important. Yeah, and they want that EPS really fast. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, and not cluttered up by other things. So Nick, what's? Uh, let me ask you about the marketing of this. You've got a newsletter now that focuses on communications, right? obviously t targeted toward the corporate communications world and others. So is it your intent to compete with, as a publisher, with things like PR Week, um, and the other publications that cover the industry, how deep do you uh, expect that this commitment to Mike, what Mike and I have done for 40 years to be? Yeah, I mean, like, so our communications newsletter is not a marketing email. It's yeah. like literally the trends that we, the feedback we got was so extreme just from practice practitioners of that is that we think there is a, an editorially valid story to tell here that, that there is, that there is, there is worthy reporting separate from, I think, what a lot of the trade publications do, which is like, this person got a new job or this company hired this agency. Mm -hmm. It's more to how to communicate or what are the trends you understand, right? Like something fascinating. Well, the most recent story our communicators writer Eleanor wrote this week was how to think about emojis in communication. 
where there are generational divides, where I, as a Gen Xer, use a thumbs up emoji as just a friendly, that sounds great. <laughs> a millennial and a, or a generation Zer sees that as a snarky attack. I was like, I had no idea. Oh, neither did I. Exactly. So great. That's, that's good newsletter content. And so Eleanor was writing a lot about these challenges that communicators face as practitioners of this. Uh, aside from just basic smart brevity, which of course the newsletter was written in that, but right, like how do you write for different cultures? How do you talk about ESG or DEI? How do you make mm -hmm. sure you're using emojis correctly? What do you have to be worried about as far as how to present yourself on different social media platforms? And so it's more for uh, like tips and tricks to be smarter, faster as a practitioner of this. And maybe the book is a complimentary piece of yeah. From a, from extension that. of that. Yeah. 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 And some people may not realize that it's not just Axios and now you've got Axios for communicators. You have a whole slew of different industry or issue specific uh, newsletters online as well. Right. Yeah. We're up to about, I, I, you know, I gotta go back. Like I gotta, I gotta go refresh the website launching them so quickly about 25 or like probably 25 to 30 yeah. starting at a very high level am and pm you know sort of how to understand the world mm -hmm. and then we speak specific like the way we launch them in the newsroom is like what are the trends you need to understand to understand the 21st century so we have a space newsletter on the private space race which is fascinating we have a, new, a newsletter on china the rise of china and its relationship to the united states something very important we've got a number of uh newsletters on business and finance and macro um economics we're writing on budget plans so think about what newsletters we launch in the new year and then the next piece of that has been uh how do you understand your community we're in yeah. 30 cities, maybe, depending on the week. We have aspirations to double that um, next year. And the final piece of that is we've just begun launching subscription newsletters, which get very much in depth into specific industries. Uh, we have them for deals. We're launching them for policy um, next month. Well, and also just to describe for, to our listeners the advertising, because the advertising is a different animal in this yeah. than it is for a traditional newspaper or a magazine in that literally one day's or, or one morning's post might be sponsored by company XYZ or foundation ABC and then have kind of intercessional ads in the middle of, of what copy is being shared, right? Yeah. So, so like our, our philosophy is, you know, the, the lessons we've learned in the newsroom, the advertising side also has. And so there is a team of ad copywriters at Axios separate from the newsroom who help companies implement the tenets of smart brevity in their ads. Uh, and then they appear uh, as labeled sponsored content um, in the newsletters. And the data we have on that is, again, like they're short, they're to the point. They get folks to engage much more. I talk about this a lot with when I speak to advertising people. Look, if or advertising agencies, it's like if, if look if some company wants to give you a million dollars to create a website and write a big long PDF and stick it up on the web, like take the money. But no one's gonna like no one's gonna listen to your three hour podcast with your chief marketing officer being interviewed <laughs> by some vice president. It's like no, think about what your message is and think about a way of delivering it in an effective way mm -hmm. to readers. And so we have a team at Axios on our ad side which does that as well. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, 
Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. Now, you talked about how technology has changed and changed the game for how Axios and interacts with the world and the creation of smart brevity. But society itself has has changed, too, in terms of the audience you're trying to reach. And we've talked a lot on on, on our podcast uh, with some political players and, and, and some people out of the news business who have been distraught a little bit about how we've all gravitated to kind of these you know, uh, politically polarized echo chambers. Yeah. And just wonder, you know, how do how do the people at Axios, how do you uh, think about the type of information you're supplying and how does that play in a world where so much we get has a political bent or biased and is as far as you can get away from what I remember growing up with when, you know, we had the venerable Walter Cronkite as the CBS news anchor and he'd sign off every night saying that's the way it is. I mean, we have more than three networks now. So well, like I, I have two pieces of, 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 of thinking about that. Now, first, there is a universe of people. It's, it's tens and tens of millions of people in the United States who do want a trusted news source, who do want to say, like, look, I don't want to watch Fox News political opinion. I don't want to watch MSNBC News political opinion. I just want to go to a place that someone will carry me, mm-hmm. a place that I can trust. And now in, in, in some of the founding documents, we were big on writing manifestos here at Axios. One of the additional reasons in delivering information efficiently was was being a place that you can trust, where we're writing from mm-hmm. real bylines. We have no opinion or op-ed section. I very much policed our newsroom to make sure our journalists behaved on social media because there are forces out to destroy us. There are foreign operatives. There are political operatives. There are Internet trolls that are looking for ways to delegitimize a free press in this country. So do not give them the tools to do that. So I think about building that trust with the reader a lot. And I think as it speaks to our success, that so many people have said, yes, that is great. You guys aren't picking candidates. You're just reporting news. There's no opinion page in here that I have to figure out if this is the real thing or the not the real thing. It's, no, it's just news reporting. We're journalists reporting our facts. However, there is also a universe that is probably also tens of millions of people in the United States who do not want that source, who are very happy to live in these bubbles of, conspiracies and QAnon and secret cabals of people destroying the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they can go into social media chambers where they're just bombarded with that because it's very lucrative to bombard people with that. I do not have a solution for how to reach people who do not want to be reached. Interesting. Not to down note, but like that's, that's, I think, I think that is a very fundamental challenge for democracy. Now, Axios itself had a little bit of news here back in September in it being acquired by uh, Cox Enterprises. Yeah. What does that mean for Axios? What does that mean for, for you and the team that have, have, have given Axios life? Yeah, it, I mean, we'll be able to do more faster. What we're finding in Cox is a really long-term partner. Like they view investments in this kind of uh, journalism in a generational way. This is a family that has its roots um, in local newspapers um, last century, uh, I think really has in their blood, is still 
run and controlled by the family, still has two newspapers, one in Ohio, the first one, and then one in Atlanta where they're based now. And I think was very much drawn to Axios as a way to make a, like a, a very generational bet to really make an investment to see how many communities can we go into, how many topics can we cover that we can bring sharp, clear-eyed, unbiased journalism to try and reach that universe of people that we know is interested in this and hopefully begin to make cracks in this edifice of people who are not interested in it. Like perhaps you can reach them if you can create enough, uh, uh, like to, uh, enough value um, in the journalism you're doing and also in their communities. Like I have a list on the, on the wall right outside this office of all 384, I think, metropolitan areas in the United States of America. And I've got the first 20 <laughs> crossed off, but like, let's get all the way down to Carson City, Nevada <laughs> in the next couple of years. And having a partner like Cox, is, I think, is a way to take the very long view of, of being able to make that kind of investment. Well, I, I hope, Nick, you want to get to upstate New York, too, because we need local news coverage where I where I live. A hundred percent. Like we're starting in very big cities just to, to, to test this model, but like figuring out how to get into smaller communities, a hundred percent on our list. Stay tuned. Well, this is so you're you're running against the current here or swimming against the current here, right? Because local news, there's not many people investing in local news. Let's put it that way right now. The business model has collapsed for a variety of reasons. Why will one, one specific business model has collapsed? Yes, that's correct. The traditional. Has the tr- because this right. is the year 2022. And the idea that you would print out something on a piece of paper, load it on a truck and drive <laughs> it to my house and throw it at me just doesn't make sense as an information delivery mechanism. So, yeah, that business model is broken. And the people who are running that are still figuring it out. And as they lay off journalists, all I do is hire them as we're testing a new business model. And I am heartened a little bit in local news is that like, if you think about 10, 15 years ago, the national news model was broken. The Washington post was on the block for $250 million. The New York times was pinching together giant loans from billionaires in Mexico. And like, we didn't really know if they were going (laughs) to figure it out. And now look at the post and the journal and the uh, the wall street journal, the New York times, like they're going, they they, they solved for that on a national basis. I think local news is 10 years behind that. And so now a lot of people like Axios, uh, like there's a lot of foundations. If you look at in Baltimore, there's a huge investment for the Baltimore banner that's happening in Houston. That's happening in yeah. uh, uh, Cleveland as well. Texas, Texas, of, uh, Texas Tribune. Tribune, I think it's a great example of that. There's a lot of smart people and a lot of smart money beginning to move into this space to try and solve it. We're just a piece of it. I don't, I'm not saying a, a Axios newsletter is the way you solve journalism completely in a community, but it's, right. I think it can be a very valuable piece. And if it shows other people, shows people to make other types of experiments separate from this idea of printing out a newspaper and hoping it's filled with supermarket ads, I'm heartened by the, the trend lines in that. Well, that's, so that's journalism today. What, what about journalists? You say you're you're hiring them and you, you've written piece you co-authored on Substack, that journalists crave and need independence, but at the same time also need the support of a newsroom. So how does your local news initiative work, Nick? In other words, uh, yeah, there are people who would love nothing more than to be a one-person shop and open up a Substack and go hustle and round up people. 
a lot of work. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, like, and I've talked to like, there are there, like I've talked to people who run Substacks who have quit running Substacks and like, don't underestimate the amount of work you have to think about as far as marketing and subscriber growth. And well, you know, like, do I need an LLC to process my payments or like, okay, what are the healthcare deals here? What happens when I take a week off? Who gives me health insurance? Like who gives me a vacation days? And so uh, for the local journalists we hire, like they're full-time employees, they're part of a company and they're supported by a massive newsroom, like a CMS that's being updated by a really awesome technology team, data visualization and illustrators that provide a lot of the uh, like extra visuals that make a newsletter so compelling. There's someone they can call if they're in Houston and they've got a beat on a story, there's someone in Austin they can bounce ideas off of. They can be part of teams that tell national stories. If it's news in Denver and Minneapolis and Atlanta, this is a story worth telling to all of the United States. And I think being a part of that uh, and just having an editor, you know, Absolutely. someone who can strike ideas with you every day is very valuable. Yeah. So we've, we've talked a little bit about the business side of things. How interested do you want your journalists to be in that business side? Because obviously you've got a, a business proposition based on the model of how you communicate. And I'm just wondering if these two worlds come together maybe yeah. a little bit more tightly than they do in a tradition in, in what we would think of as a more traditional journalist model or journalism model. Yeah. I think it's important to journalists to know how their business works. When I started out at the Washington Post at a newspaper, the newsroom held the business side in contempt. Why would we ever worry ourselves with what those classified ad salespeople are right. doing up on the sixth floor? And then when that classified ad business turned, you know, we all started getting laid off. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like we had, we, like we were, like we were, fortunately able just to not worry about it. And I think something that is happening in journalism is that journalists are becoming much more attuned to that. And it's very much a part of what we've done at Axios. Hey, the most important thing to do with a media business is make it a business. Don't just hire a bunch of journalists and then figure out how you're going to make the money start from the beginning with like, what is your business model here? Who is paying for all this? Be it ads or events or subscriptions or foundations, or just have some kind of model of that. And we very much try at Axios, try to, in, 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 to educate the newsroom on that. So they know, about you know how what is the ad business doing right how are we monetizing this how are we growing because again like what is what is what was my north star as editor-in-chief and what is my north star as publisher i just want to hire journalists and i can only hire journalists if we make money so let's think about how we make money so i can go and hire journalists there's a mm -hmm. slight tweak to that in that i don't want to make journalists think about it too much right like the phrase i would use in the newsroom when reporters would look at their subscriber growth or at like whether there were ads in their newsletters or what the sell throw rate is you should care but not be worried there's a whole other side of this company that is that is supposed to boost subscriber rates that is to go out and sell ads that is to go out and find memberships we are rooting for their success and we should pay attention and understand how it works but i don't want journalists focused on that at the expense of the journalism so trying to find that, I think we've done a pretty good job of finding that middle ground where they're aware of how this works and they care and they understand it, but they realize at the end of the day, their job is to just do great journalism. That sounds like a, Nick, sounds like a corporate internal communications campaign that many of us have, you know, the more people know about the business, the better, better employees they'll be. 
I mean, and again, like for Axios HQ, like we're just not, I don't just sell it. I'm a client. Right. Right. So like I have a weekly newsletter for my newsroom in that where I would talk about like what we're launching and why we're launching it and the, and the, and the success of different types of businesses. Uh, Ben Van High, our CEO, uses it too, writes one weekly, the one yesterday, writes it every Sunday night, all an all hands email. The one yesterday was his thoughts on the economy, like, and what that might mean for the business. So people understand like, okay, what are the investments we're going to make? How will that be impacted depending on how the economy unfolds in the next couple of months? Just be aware of that and a, a participant in how these decisions are made at a company. Well, last, last question, Nick, and, and our listeners uh, on the crux are people who do this for a living, people in agencies or in-house communications teams, students, faculty, et cetera, people who are in the business. Yeah. So where does Axios go with smart brevity in the future? Are you going to be hiring, for example, PR professionals, communications professionals to try to grow this business? to sell it to more people and to provide the expertise that uh, your, your customers are going to be asking for. I mean, uh, like, like we are still growing. Like that is the great part of the Cox investment. And and another element of that Cox investment is that it allowed us to spin out the Axios HQ part. So Axios media, the newsroom, the media business still exists. And now as a separate company uh, is Axios HQ, which now them detached from the newsroom to go out and invest in the technology solutions and into, into hiring this. So look, Nick at Axios.com is my email address. I'm an inbox hero. <laughs> in if you have ideas about this, if you think I'm an idiot, you should send me an email. If you want to get on this rocket ship, you should send me an email. And also sign up at Axios.com. Like if you're in this business, you should sign up for Axios Communicator. It's, it's a tremendous newsletter. And what's interesting about it is it's not written by a journalist. It's written by someone we hired who did internal comms. Her background was not journalism. Her background was comms. Exactly. Which is why she brings such a very insightful, specific mindset, I think, to covering it. Well, Nick, this has been great. We're at about 40 minutes now, so I expect we're going to get a spanking from you. Nick, thank you so much for being on, on the Crux. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Crux. Our producer is Boston University student Anna Huynh. This episode and other episodes are made possible by the Boston University College of Communication, or COM as it is known. Located in the heart of downtown Boston, COM is BU's home to the studies of advertising, emerging media, film and TV, journalism, media science, and public relations. At COM, We seek to build understanding among people through better communication. Find out more at www.bu.edu forward slash com.